Good morning, church. Oh, it's so good to be with you today, uh, whether you're here in person or watching online. Uh, You picked a great Sunday to be here to tune in. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series uh, called Meals and Movement, or Movement in Meals. I should probably remember what I called it, right? And the reason why we're we're doing this is because one of the uh, one of the things or one of the um, symbols that Jesus used throughout his public ministry to talk about the very important thing of the kingdom of God was a table. Uh, tables were incredibly important uh, pieces of the first century culture, as well as I think at least back in the day. I know we're all eating on couches watching Netflix. I'm I'm included in that. But back in the day, like for me, the table is where my family gathered. Now, I don't know that anyone's a Christian before 7 a.m., so when my family woke up to go to school and go to to work, I mean, it was just sort of cutthroat, but after our busy days, we would gather around the table to actually catch up on what was going on. I don't know about you, but for my parents who who aren't perfect, surprises I found out, but they were pretty open. We we could literally talk about whatever we wanted. So I'm a child of the 90s, and some of the things that we talked about, man, it's crazy to think about, and current events were like the Oklahoma City bombing, the Columbine shooting. I mean, the shooters were were my age. It was the first uh, school shooting that was ever, I think, publicized in our country. The O.J. Simpson trial, Rodney King beatings, L.A. riots, the Waco siege, the Bosnian genocide, Monica Lewinsky, Bill Gates scandal, the Gulf War, and even uh, the first time that I heard of someone, a musician that I admired, pass away. We even were allowed to talk about Kurt Cobain's death. It was at the table where I found out what my mom and dad really believed about politics, (laughs) about religion, about life, about sex and dating and relationships. It was also the place where my family celebrated birthdays, job promotions, getting my first job at Skyline Chili. If you're from Cincinnati, which none of you are probably, if you ever visit Cincinnati, it's the best chili you have in your life. They put chocolate in it. You're welcome. And and it's it's disgusting. And and it's also the place where we mourned when my grandparents passed away or friends moved off our street. The table was critical for our uh, growing up years. In fact, um, you know, as I said before, I'm a '90s kid, and some of the my most favorite TV shows. Uh, most of those scenes were actually shot around a table. Maybe you can recognize some of these TV shows, right? Family Matters with the geek Urkel, who's actually like really cool in person. I follow him on Instagram. Uh, Saved by the Bell. Anybody remember the Max, those scenes? Yeah, nobody? Okay. You can actually participate during the sermon. I'm going to let you do that. I did student ministry for a decade. They do it anyways. Uh, What about the Wonder Years? Hands down, my favorite TV show, the Wonder Years, I think is still on Netflix. It's about an American family going through the turbulent times of the 60s, the Vietnam War. Seriously, one of the best uh, shows, probably because of the narration. And then who can forget Full House, right? Crazy big family, uh, always had the piano soft moments at the end. You know what I'm saying? If you remember that with Danny Tanner and one of his girls. The, The table was essential to not only my life, but to the culture of the America way of living. And it was essential to Jesus. Of all of the symbols that Jesus could have used, he chose to use uh, a table. And he chose to use it to talk about one of his most important topics, the very thing that I believe Jesus came for, which is to talk about the kingdom of God. 
And so what I'd like for you to do is if you have your Bibles or maybe you've downloaded the Bible app uh, on your, in your app store, turn with me to Luke chapter 11, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look at one of the first meals that Jesus has with uh, Levi, who was a uh, toll booth collector, worked for the IRS and the Roman government. So right there, you know people really love him. <laughs> and so what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is look at seven different meals throughout the Gospel of Luke that Jesus had with different people. And I just think that's kind of beautiful, right? Because like, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, among other religions, God would never get so close that we could touch him or interact with him. That's why a lot of major religions deny the Christian view of the Trinity, that God would actually become like one of us. And not only does God become one of us, like we get to watch him eat and chew bread and drink wine, and we get to talk about current events. We get to celebrate things with him. We get to mourn with him over a glass of wine in a really good first century meal. And so here's the deal. Whether you're watching online or in person, I want to encourage you, whether you stay engaged in person or online, to be here, be present digitally or virtually over the next seven weeks. Because if you're someone that isn't, um, doesn't know too much about Jesus or is interested in how Jesus kind of carried himself with people that had bad intentions and people that had good intentions, man, this is going to be a great series for you and your family and friends to lean in on. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, here's the first meal that Jesus has. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Sitting at the tax booth, uh, follow me, Jesus said, which is like no other, just like follow me. Like, I don't even know you. You look homeless and you smell weird, but I'll follow you. Levi got up, left, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus uh, at his house in a large a crowd of tax collectors were eating with him. Jesus was like at an IRS convention. That sounds boring. But the Pharisees, the religious people were there, your pastors, your PhD Bible professors, they were there too. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus's disciples, right? Surprise if you're familiar with the scriptures, especially the gospels. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and Worst of all, sinners. And Jesus answered them, right? Like he's talking to his followers and Jesus kind of, oh, I can overhear them. Don't you hate that when that happens? And he looks at them and says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's like, I've not come for the healthy. Healthy people don't necessarily think I need to go see a doctor. Jesus is saying there's people in our world that are already convinced that God loves them. They're the best things in sliced bread. When they die, they're going to go to heaven. I've not come for those kinds of people. I've come for the sick, the broken, the hurting, the sinful, the abandoned, the abused, and the neglected. Those are the kinds of people that I've come for. And Jesus is probably really good at introducing awkward silence. Like, what do you say after that in a party. So what I'd like to do is talk about three different movements of grace throughout this text. First of all, grace is an invitation. The first thing that Jesus says to Levi and most of his disciples is simply this, follow me. 
We believe at RCC, like we exist, to invite people to journey with Jesus. And that's not something we just say to fill up time. We actually mean that because of the discipleship and the way in which Jesus actually lived his life. Every invitation that Jesus gave people to follow him, right, was a conversation to begin a journey, to begin a journey. Jesus didn't roll up on people and say, do you believe these 10 tenets about the Bible, which doesn't currently exist, but if you don't, I'm going to judge you, you can't follow me? No. Jesus said, hey, come follow me. I'll teach you theology, I'll teach you doctrine, but I'll teach you justice, I'll teach you mercy, I'll teach you how to love people that society says, why are you doing that? And I'll even bring up some of your own junk that you need to deal with that you keep burying. Grace is an invitation. In fact, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 records Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. I mean, if that's something that the world is not, I, I don't know what, what we are. He said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, before you decide to follow somebody, you want to consider their yoke. And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm hungry. I want some eggs. Yoke in rabbinic teaching, uh, in rabbinic school, was their teaching. Yoke was the way a rabbi saw life. So if you're new to the scriptures or want to be reminded again what the yoke of Jesus was, read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would begin the Sermon on the Mount teaching on like sex and religious people and judgment and murder, anger, all of those things. But he begins, you've heard it said, right? You went to this rabbi, you went to this church, you listened to this pastor's podcast, but I tell you, See, a yoke was a rabbi's perspective on life. Now, I believe, we believe that Jesus is God. And when you're God, you don't have opinions, you have authority. And what Jesus is saying to Levi and to us is that if you follow him, his teachings will not overwhelm you. They will not burden you, unlike the Pharisees. Religious people like to take the Bible and drop it over your head. The point of religious people is to make them feel better actually at your expense. I haven't heard this phrase too much around here in New England, but where I'm from, we always heard, like especially in high school or college when you're getting ready to date, like when you can actually date to be married, uh, you would hear a pastor say, uh, when you marry someone, don't be unequally yoked, right? What does that mean? <laughs> well, what that means is what Jesus is, or what the pastor is saying is that a yoke was also this wooden thing that a, an oxen would put his head through, top and bottom, and the farmer would, would lock it, right? And so the reason why you want to be equally yoked is that you could work the fields with the other ox. Now, Christians freak out and come to me completely terrified when they get divorced. Right? When two Christians get divorced, they feel horrible and terrible. And look, let's face it, divorce is never fun. But there's another emotional component to I'm letting God down. I'm letting Jesus down. Hey, I married a Christian. I didn't think I would get divorced. We were equally yoked. No, you weren't. Because part of being equally yoked isn't that you ascribe to the same religion. It's that, like the oxen and like followers of Jesus, not that you believe the same things, but you walk in step together, living out those same things. I'll let that settle in. It's heavy. 
It's not that you just say, well, I married a person with the same worldview. Great. Did you walk in step together with them? That's a different conversation, isn't it? And somehow in the church world, we've believed that if I marry another Christian, everything will be great. That's not true. Jesus tells the truth. We don't want to listen to him, so we make it a lot more easier to digest. What he's talking about with the yoke is that we walk in step with our spouse. We walk in step with Jesus, who says, grace is an invitation. Come and follow me. Don't get it twisted where you run ahead of Jesus and be like, oh, I don't like that part of the Bible. Can we just like get rid of Leviticus? Who reads that, right? Can we, get, can we just, Jesus, you're so conservative on human sexuality. Can we just get rid of that? Walk in step with Jesus. I don't care if you say you're a Christian. That's irrelevant to me. Are you walking in step with Jesus? And the reason why uh, Levi and this meal is so important, it's going to set the stage for the other six meals, especially the end where we're going to end with the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is because the invitation uh, that grace is, is an opportunity to actually walk with Jesus and to kind of keep your mouth shut and just let him interact with other people. And then after that, you're going to find that the disciples will go, hey, what happened here? Or Jesus, being the good leader that he is, he said, hey, let me tell you what you just witnessed. And this is the exact same thing that is going to happen with Jesus, Levi, and the Pharisees. Now, why do I tell you all that? If you are a Jesus follower, you have influence. The question is, do people want to follow you? Right? Do people actually trust you when the stuff hits the fan and they have God questions? Are they actually going to talk to you? I don't care how much you know. I really don't. Leadership and following Jesus has less to do with head knowledge and more to do with influence. I think this is why Jesus was so attractive to every walk of life that he interacted with in the Gospels. One of my favorite sayings from Rich Mullins, he, he passed away as a Christian artist. If you've never heard of any of Rich's stuff or read his lyrics, you need to do that like tonight incredible stuff. He says, I'm a Christian, not because someone explained the nuts and bolts of Christianity, although that is important, but because there were people willing to be nuts and bolts, right? Are you willing (laughs) to utilize a very common symbol in our culture, the table, to invite people to journey with Jesus? I can't tell you how many, now that restaurants are finally open, how many conversations? I'm doing more ministry at Panera Bread than I am here or my house or any other place. Um, it's often when the pressure of life is painful enough, that's when people get open about God. Um, although I, you know, f- funerals are very sad, I get more God conversations over funerals than I do at weddings, right? For obvious reasons. You can figure out why. If you don't know, then I'm not going to tell you. We're going through a pandemic. Six months of a funeral, of saying goodbye to a preferred, preferred future, what we thought were going to be realities. Let me tell you something, church. People are more open to God than ever before. Are you the kind of person, not a guilt statement, but definitely a gut check, are you the kind of person that when a friend of yours, a buddy of yours says, I need to talk to somebody, does your name come up? I'm going to guess the Pharisees' names probably would not have come up to Levi. Yet Jesus did. Why? 
because he lived his life as though faith was an invitation to be lived and not theological, theoretical statements to believe, and then we just go on about our life doing whatever we want. Grace, my friends, is an invitation, and the invitation that Jesus gives is at a table. It's over a meal. Let's stop being religious and pontificating this thing. The gospel uses very common everyday objects to talk about what's most important to people. You could have a church service in a poorly lit, you know, restaurant in Manchester, 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 I can't even talk, uh, late Saturday night, then you would at a church service because that person would never set foot in a church, in a church service. But if they got you, if you're willing to make your life available to them, that will come over time. People don't need to see religious people. They need to see real people in real time struggling to live out the gospel in the same reality that they find themselves in. Grace is an invitation. Also, grace is a perception. And we're going to see the wrong way uh, to perceive and to look at people. In Luke 5, 29-30, Luke writes, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors, I mean, the dude was rich, and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples. Who do you eat, or why do you eat, that's weird, and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you could take this for what you want, but I thought it was interesting, and as the communicator today, I'm going to present it to you as a meal. You can decide if you want to pass it or nibble on it. Dr. Jeff Schwartz from UCLA wrote an article called The Brain and Self-Judgment, How Does Religion Affect the Prefrontal Cortex? Long title to basically say this, that through his study and research, that more times than not, religious people tend to look at other people through the Christians, at least, uh, through the lens of what Christ has done for them, right? The main charge that Jesus gives to love your enemies, uh, Christians tend to look at other people in light of not um, who they are, but what Christ has done for them. Now, you might be like, yeah, right, I know some Christians, and you wouldn't be wrong. You would be right. You could even flip that. But what the research was saying is that more times than not, non-religious people think in terms of autonomy when they view other people. Now, again, you can push back and say, I've got a lot of great atheist friends that are very compassionate and a lot of Christian friends that are kind of jerks. And you would be right. You wouldn't be wrong. The point is, how do you look at other people that are different than you? How do you look at other people that are, you would perceive a mess, that would maybe never step foot uh, in a church. Because let me tell you something. The Pharisees looked at Levi and his other tax collector buddies and said, why are they trying to be in the presence of Jesus? Right? Can we just be honest for for a moment here? Where do you find yourself doing that? Right? We do that a lot in parenting with morality. Well, at least my kid's not like Johnny, who does this, this, and that, right? We tell our kids to behave well. We don't tell our kids to guard, our, guard their hearts, and that just evolves over time to being really good at morality and not really loving well. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, wrote this, If other people don't measure up, then we despise or avoid them. Yet, like the Pharisees, oh man, this is, this is intense, we need them so we can feel good about ourselves, the Pharisees need the sinners so they can feel 
great about how righteous they are. And then he goes on to say, and if we don't measure up, then our God turns on us and condemns us. Life is seen as a race, and you're a loser if you're not successful, wealthy, or attractive. Do you feel that? I do. I feel like that describes our culture quite a bit. And Tim's just calling out what Jesus is calling out is that grace is a perception of how we should look at other people. The best theologians in the world should be the most kind, humble, generous, and compassionate people. If your theology and your religion drives you to judge and put others down, you're definitely not following Jesus, and I would encourage you to ascribe or subscribe to a different religion. How do you look when you look at other people. Because, here's why that's important, and you're going to feel this more next week when uh, Jesus allows a local prostitute to eat with him and the Pharisees. How you look at people will determine who gets invited to eat at your table. Let me say that again. How you look at people determines if you will choose to invite them to have dinner at your table, at your home, or at a restaurant that you like. It matters how we view people. It matters that we see that faith is an invitation. And for someone in our life that's not yet a believer, it matters that we look at them and say, man, they are missing out on the greatest adventure that they could ever experience. And I want to be the first person that invites them into that. Grace is an invitation. It, it is also a perception of how we see people. And lastly, it's, it's salvation. Grace is salvation. In Luke 5.36, Jesus drops the hammer. Jesus answered them and said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Which, <laughs> he, he's kind of going, um, excuse me, uh, in this room, who's healthy and who's sick? Right? Now, religiously, we want to be like, oh, I'm not healthy. But let's, let's just be real. We tend to live our lives as we have it all together. I'll prove it to you. How are you doing? I'm fine. Jesus is asking, I'm here for the wretched sinners, the broken down people, the hurt, the abused, the taken advantage of, the divorced, the left for dead, the forgotten. I'm here for those people. Like, who, who, in, this room is, who, who in this room can identify with, with those words? What about you, RCC? Who can identify with those words? The concept of good and bad is detrimental to our world. There is no such thing as good and bad if the gospel exists. Because according to the gospel, there are only righteous and unrighteous people. In other words, what Jesus is saying, <laughs> I'm the only healthy person here. Everybody at this dinner party is sick. And if you do not understand your humanity and the depravity of your humanity and of your sin, you, you don't even want to be saved, let alone entertain me in a dinner conversation. Check out this quote from the New Testament theology proclamation of Jesus. The inclusion of sinners. Let me read that again. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Jesus ticked religious people, church people off for who he hung out with. Jesus could care less about being accused of being guilty by association. 
that's on religious people. That's on church people. That's not a burden that Jesus seems to even care about, let alone even worry about. Now, let me, let me close here by giving you two big words, two big Bible theology words that are going to be necessary to understand, and for some of you it'll be a reminder, for the remaining six meals. Because it's the difference between the way religious people look at the world and others and the way the gospel and Jesus looks at other people in the world. It's two big words. Write this down or put it in your phone. Justification and sanctification. Justification answers the question, do I matter? Every, I don't care if you're religious or not. It doesn't matter to me. Everybody asks the question, do I matter? Do I exist in the world? Do I have meaning and do I have purpose? Now, they're not asking, they're not thinking about the theological term of justification, but they want to know that their existence actually matters. And that, I think that's a good God desire. Sanctification answers the question, will you leave me? Will you leave me when I screw up? Is there going to be a point, God, where I'm going to have so much sin in my life that you're going to be like, you know, salvation card revoked? <clears throat> Justification is met in Romans 3.21 when Paul says, now, apart from the law, the Old Testament, the Torah, the 613 commands in the Old Testament, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. In other words, the point of the law is to tell us that good people don't go to heaven, right? Good people go to hell because good people want to be good. They don't want to be declared righteous. They want to figure it out on their own. The law was given to humanity to show us the exact point that nobody could ever be good enough to get into heaven or to have favor with God. Let's continue. I forgot where I was. Let's keep going. To which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no, if you believe, boom, it's yours. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now let's get into racial terms. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by what? His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Here's the number one thing your uh, non, I hate to say non, you're non-Christian or people that don't follow Jesus. Here's the number one thing they believe. They don't believe. I mean, they don't believe the biblical understanding of justification, which is this. You go from 0% forgiven by God to 100% forgiven by God in an instance. You don't know why they, they don't believe that? Because no one's loved them that way. Not, not, even, not even if they had really good parents. And no other religion teaches on this side of heaven, before you die, you can know 100% where you stand with God. That you can go from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven in a matter of a moment. Now, here's where we get it twisted. It's with the sanctification aspect of it. In 1 Peter 5, 15 uh, through 16, Peter writes these words. But just as he, Jesus, who's called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Pretty tall order, right? For it is written, be holy because I am holy. See, for the Christian, when the Christian is justified, they can stand in full confidence that I have been justified even despite my horrible, wicked sinfulness and <clears throat> despite all my good days. When I was a good person, I did the good thing, which also cost Jesus his life. I can stand justified, not in what I do, but what Christ has done for me on the cross on my behalf. 
Yet, we still ask this question, because we're humans, will Jesus leave me? Forget what I've already done. Now, will he leave me after I confess my faith and be baptized? And the answer is no, because the word sanctification simply means, is a various form, is the adjective of being holy. So if justification is going from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven in a moment, your status does not change. Parents, when your kids tick you off, does that make them less of a kid to you? Don't answer that, but you, you are, they're still your kid, right? You're their parent. You're their parent, is what I meant to say. That doesn't change. The sanctification piece is where we get squirrely because we like to self-deprecate and not have full confidence in the gospel. It's this like growth chart, right? Like, I mean, maybe you were here in 2019 and everyone in, a, in the world in 2020 is like, boom, right here, right? And then now maybe we're up and then we go down. Maybe we go, we go up. This graph does not change the fact that you've been justified by the blood of Christ. It just shows, throw up our discipleship pathway graphic. It just shows that you're on your journey with Jesus and you're going to have great years and you're going to have horrible years. It doesn't change the fact that you've been justified by the blood of Christ, you've repented of your sins, and you've been baptized to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Religious people say sanctification comes first. Do, 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 do. And then at the end of your life, based on how you lived, you will then be told if you're justified. That is literally every world religion other than the gospel. What the gospel says, no, 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 you're justified now, and then after you're justified, you can begin your journey with Jesus. But what if I get divorced? What if I scream my head off at my kid? Well, what if I have a season of doubt where I don't go to church for like, I don't know, 18 months? doesn't change the fact that you've been justified. The gospel says that we can be bad in the presence of love, and love will not leave us. This is why you need to open your homes. This is why you cannot wait for life to get back to normal, whatever that is. Jesus has given you a kitchen table. If you don't want to use yours, borrow someone else's. If you don't want to use theirs, go out to eat. Jesus has given you so many ta tables throughout our community in Salem to introduce the gospel, the kingdom of God, to somebody in our community. That's why we're doing this, friends. That's why we're doing this series, is that this series is highlighting the idea that we need to journey with a group of friends. I want you to be thinking about who are those persons in my life that need other people to journey with Jesus? Or maybe, maybe we don't come right out and share the gospel before the appetizers get there. But at some point, we're building trust enough that when our friends struggle, they know who to text, they know who to call, they know who to send a DM on social media. Listen, friends, our hope lies in conformity to Christ, not in a religious code that none of us, none of us could obey even if we tried. So as we close out today, here's the invitation for you to take your next step to open your home, to schedule dinners or coffees at restaurants, to expand your circle of influence. If you say, Ben, man, I don't know that I know anybody that's not a Jesus follower. Well, take some time, maybe put a pause, or maybe invite some RCC friends to go with you, but get involved in other things in our community and build those relationships. Our mission is not tied to a building. It is tied to men and women, you and I, that are willing to have conversations because every conversation leads 
to an invitation towards the movement of grace. So let me pray, and we'll continue our worship. Hey, Jesus, thanks so much for um, your willingness to uh, do big things in small ways, that you would use a table in a kitchen to talk about the reality of the kingdom of God, the reality of the gospel. God, I can't think of a more um, important season in the world's history right now than a global pandemic, that there are so many people open to faith and conversations about you know, the afterlife, heaven and hell and salvation, that I pray that we'd be a church that, that does it. And God, I'm just as bummed and twisted that we all can't meet in person. But hey, listen, your mission, your kingdom is not about huddling every week, although that's needed and we need that, but it's about going out and being the mission, being the church, being the kingdom of God at Copper Door, at a steakhouse, at Starbucks, at Dunkin' Donuts, at Juicealicious, and definitely at Maddie's with extra crispy bacon. It's an invitation to come alongside other people and to let them know, hey, faith is not a set doctrine of tenets. It's an invitation for you to follow the living God. Would you encourage us? Spirit, would you agitate us enough to do that? this week and over the next two months as we explore more meals that you have with other people. God, we thank you for your love. It's more than we can understand and, and, and comprehend, and, and I hope it remains that way for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.